Hi, I'm Helena Cobbin, the president of Just World Educational. I'm also the creator of the web-based platform globalities.org, where, since the beginning of 2023, I've been publishing on a nearly weekly basis a series of essays on the now rapidly changing landscape of the international order and its governance. In this podcast series, I'll be voicing some of the recent essays from Globalities. Globalities is a project of Just World Educational. If you'd like to support this project, please go to the Just World Educational website and click on the Donate button at the top there. And now, here is the first spoken essay in this series. This essay is titled, A Korean-Style Armistice for Ukraine? It was published in text form on globalities.org in January 2023. Over the past 11 months, Ukraine's people have suffered far too much killing and destruction. Most, but by no means all of that devastation, has been at the hands of the Russian military. Residents of the country's eastern provinces have been hammered hard by the Ukrainian military over the course of several years now. Their fate has been almost ignored in Western media. How do we think about and respond to all this suffering? Should we join the serried ranks of the Western punditocracy who endlessly urge that ever more and deadlier weaponry be sent to Ukraine? Or shouldn't we instead be starting to call for a formalized, countrywide ceasefire in Ukraine? That is, an armistice, like the one that for 70 years now has preserved a broad ceasefire on the Korean peninsula and has allowed South Korea not just to survive, but also to flourish. I realize the Koreas have not been totally peaceful since their armistice went into force in 1953. North Korea has a belligerent, nuclear-armed leader who often seems very erratic. And South Korea's president is now also talking about the possibility of going nuclear. But still, the armistice has served all of Korea's people, especially those in the South, and the cause of world peace pretty well for many decades now. The Korean Armistice Agreement was signed in July 1953 in the North Korean village of Panmunjom. I'll come back to the Koreas later, but for now, let's circle back to the grinding and globally very harmful situation in Ukraine. Ever since Russia launched its large-scale invasion of Ukraine last February, political leaders and influential commentators in NATO countries have called for tipping the balance against Russia by supplying Kyiv with ever larger shipments of ever more capable weaponry and increased training. Since the beginning, though, the NATO leaders have also carefully avoided crossing the line to any direct engagement there between NATO and Russia. Hence, no NATO weapons have been sent that would allow Ukraine to strike easily into Russia. And there has been no direct involvement by NATO militaries in the fighting there. Those lines have sometimes been blurred or stretched. But the basic mantra of no direct NATO involvement has been kept in place, and very wisely so. Ukraine is not a NATO member. 
NATO's mutual defense agreements do not apply to it. Any direct fighting between a nuclear-armed NATO and a nuclear-armed Russia could all too easily escalate to the terrifying level where no one wants to go. But the provision of continuing military aid to Ukraine and the limits on that aid have between them kept Ukrainians trapped in a meat grinder of continuing warfare that at the level of facts on the ground has shifted very little over recent months. Ever since the Russians got pushed out of the northern areas around Kyiv, the front lines elsewhere have been pushed east or west by just a few kilometers, but at the cost of hundreds of lives each time. Back in 1916, at World War I's infamous Battle of Verdun, 163,000 French and 143,000 German soldiers were killed in 10 months of fighting. The front line barely moved in that time. And Verdun was just the epicenter of a broader and lengthier stalemate on the battlefields of northern France that was finally broken only after the arrival of a large American expeditionary force the following year. This time, in Ukraine, there will be no expeditionary force from the United States or any other NATO country. At this point, the best outcome that Ukraine's military can expect on the battlefield is a continuation of the Verdun-like meat grinder. All the new gadgetry promised by NATO won't alter this picture significantly. Ukraine's military has been trained for decades on the Soviet-style weapon systems that until recently filled its arsenals. NATO has scrambled to find Soviet-style weapons wherever they can to send to Kyiv for resupply. But then, when they send in Western systems, Ukrainian soldiers need a lot of training to use them. The NATO country's stockpiles of the tools of ground warfare are anyway pretty low, a fact that Western leaders only rarely admit to. And Western states' capacities to ramp up their production lines are limited. Russia, meanwhile, is a large, rich country whose functioning has been dented only a little by the sanctions slapped onto it by Western countries. It has large stockpiles of precisely the kinds of weapons its military has been using in Ukraine, and a deep capacity to restock those arsenals as needed. So Ukrainians and their friends are at a crossroads. One road leads to a lengthy continuation of Verdun in some shape or form. The other leads to Panmunjom, where in 1953, American, North Korean and Chinese commanders were finally able to halt a war that had killed around three million people by then over the preceding three years. Of those people killed, roughly half a million were fighters on the North Korean-Chinese side, 170,000 were fighters on the South Korean-UN side, and an estimated two to three million were civilians, many of them killed in massive U.S. bombing raids. The Panmunjom Agreement was painstakingly negotiated over the course of two years and was signed in three agreed versions, in English, 
Korean and Chinese. It never led to the planned final peace agreement between the sides. Since 1953, there have been periodic outbreaks of tension, threats, and some fighting between North and South Korea. The peninsula has remained highly militarized, and North Korea has declared its withdrawal from the agreement a number of times, most recently in 2013. But each time, it backtracked and returned. The armistice of 1953 halted the big war in Korea, and there has not been a big war since then. Meantime, the armistice allowed for the reconstruction of war-shattered cities and infrastructure throughout the whole peninsula. In the case of South Korea, the decades after 1953 saw the development of a super-robust economy and a flourishing, increasingly democratic society. Recently, Russia Today ran a slightly elliptical report indicating that Russia is actively considering a Korea-style armistice in Ukraine. In late November, the Moscow-located writer John Helmer gave more details about plans that he said members of the Russian general staff were eyeing for an armistice in Ukraine involving a demilitarized zone that would extend deep inside Ukraine. But the fact that plans for a Korea-style armistice for Ukraine may be favored by the leaders in Moscow should not prejudice the rest of us against such plans. And of course, all the terms of any armistice in Ukraine, including the location of any lines or DMZs involved, would be subject to negotiation. In Korea, Those negotiations lasted, as I noted, two years, and then the line of separation the parties eventually agreed on was almost exactly the same, that Washington and Moscow had agreed between their respective zones of influence in the country back before the fighting had even started. It's also relevant to note here that the Korean armistice of 1953 has never been formally agreed to then or since, by the government of South Korea. In practice, though, Seoul, which has always been heavily reliant on U.S. military support, has not worked actively to violate the armistice. And some South Korean governments, like that of former President Moon Jae-in, have shown great readiness to reach out to North Korea's president for a degree of reconciliation but it is certainly worth underlining in the Ukrainian context that the Korean Armistice Agreement offers a clear precedent in which one of the belligerent governments involved did not itself sign the agreement, though its external military backers did. A formal armistice agreement is a particular kind of a ceasefire. In any war, belligerents may negotiate short-term or partial ceasefires for any number of reasons, including the establishment of humanitarian corridors, ceasefires to mark religious holidays, and so on. But an armistice is a ceasefire that is formally agreed to by the fighting parties and covers the whole of an active battlefront. It also contains clauses that do three things. Number one, 
draw the ceasefire line firmly onto an agreed map, along with any zones of demilitarization or limited militarization either side of it. Number two, define the diplomatic path to a full, final peace agreement. And number three, define some limits on military resupply or other activities even outside the agreed zones of no or limited militarization. As noted above, the Korean Armistice Agreement took two years to negotiate. In West Asia, the four parallel armistice agreements that Israel and its Arab state neighbors signed in 1949 to end the war they'd been fighting since May 1948 were concluded in a matter of weeks. Two of those agreements, the ones with Lebanon and Syria, remain in force today. The ones with Egypt and Jordan got converted into final peace agreements. But altogether, the armistices proved very beneficial to Israel, much less so to Lebanon, Syria, and the Palestinians. We cannot know how long it would take to negotiate an armistice in Ukraine, but given the level of punishment the country's people continue to suffer on a daily basis, the sooner this happens, the better. When war broke out between North and South Korea in 1950, the whole of East Asia was in turmoil, and the U.S. forces that had recently established a large presence in the region were reeling from two massive recent setbacks. The northern end of the Korean peninsula shares a long border with China and a very short one with Russia. In September 1949, the Chinese Communist People's Liberation Army, PLA, reached Beijing at the culmination of the decades-long civil war it had fought against the country's U.S.-backed Kuomintang nationalist forces. The Kuomintang retreated to Taiwan. Also, in September 1949, the Soviet Union conducted its first test of a nuclear weapon, shattering the global monopoly the United States had held on nuclear weapons since 1945. The Soviets had had a recognized role in North Korea since 1945. In the last days of World War II, their Red Army had joined the Allied fight against Japan as they had promised. Then, after Japan surrendered in late August 1945, by agreement with Washington, the Soviets were designated the military occupiers of Korea north of the 38th parallel. There, their tasks were to receive the surrenders of the local Japanese forces and arrange for the restoration of local administration. South of the 38th parallel, the U.S. forces were performing the same basic tasks in the immediate post-war years. In China, meantime, the advances the PLA made in 1948 and 1949 sent waves of enthusiasm through all the communist and pro-communist forces of East Asia, and that included millions of Koreans, both south and north of the 38th parallel. In 1948, South Korea saw widespread protests against U.S.-backed strongman Syngman Rhee, 
which he suppressed only with difficulty. Then, in April 1950, Joseph Stalin gave North Korean leader Kim Il-sung the go-ahead to pursue Kim's long-held dream of reuniting the whole peninsula. In late June 1950, Kim's armies attacked those of Syngman Rhee, linking up with many anti-Rhee dissidents throughout the south. Rhee's capital, Seoul, fell within two days and his administration collapsed nationwide. By late summer, Kim's forces had taken nearly the whole peninsula. North Korea's advance caused as acute a crisis in Washington-Moscow relations as that sparked in Europe in 1948 over Western access to Berlin. But between those two crises, the Soviets had conducted their first test of a nuclear weapon. The crisis over Korea was the world's first big confrontation between two nuclear-armed powers. We can look at the Korean War of 1950-53 to in terms of the role it played in the interplay of relations among the United States, the Russians, and the Chinese back in the day, and also of the role it played in establishing early rules of the road for confrontations between nuclear powers. One thoughtful examination of the war concluded that the Korean War offered not the determinative but the first of a series of lessons that would eventually produce full understanding of the paradox of nuclear weapons. They confer upon those who possess them more responsibility for restraint than disposable power. At a time when the risk of nuclear confrontation hangs over Ukraine and many other parts of the world, and when relations among the United States, the Russians, and the Chinese once again define the balance of world affairs, it's worth going back to examine more closely the lessons from the Korean War and from the armistice that ended the mass killings there. A final note here. One key difference between the situation in Korea in the 1950s and the situation in Ukraine today is that prior to the outbreak of the Korean War, there were already two recognized state-like entities in the Korean peninsula, with an internationally recognized boundary between them. In Ukraine today, there is only one internationally recognized state, and Russia's claims that the populations of Crimea, Luhansk, Donetsk, and Kherson should be allowed to secede have not been widely recognized internationally. NATO, however, which in 1999 energetically and by military means supported Kosovo's secession from Serbia, and many of whose members supported the, the secession of South Sudan from Sudan, NATO is not in a great position to object to the principle behind Russia's claims. What is also clear is that if a future armistice in Ukraine is to have any resilience, it will need to be undergirded by negotiations between Russia and NATO over a range of issues 
concerning the broader situation in Europe. But let's take all these challenges one step at a time and start by working for a speedy armistice agreement for Ukraine.